This episode is brought to you by Revolver Studios, Portland's own homegrown recording studio and music production house, run by musicians for musicians. Revolverstudios.org. This is the Portland Film Podcast, and I'm your host, Molly Silverstein. Today we begin a series of workshops recorded at the 2016 Portland Film Festival, exploring the craft of screenwriting. First up is Leslie Dixon leading the Screenwriting 101 workshop, part two. Drawing from her massive success as a Hollywood screenwriter with credits like Overboard, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Thomas Crown Affair, Freaky Friday, Hairspray, and Limitless, Leslie offers tips and tricks about how to write a compelling and memorable script. One quick note before we begin. You will notice brief pauses throughout the workshop as the audience asks questions, and also some of the language used during the workshop may not be suitable for young listeners. And now, here's Leslie Dixon. Well, I used to do like 10 or 12 single-space paged outlines. Um, Now it's about three pages. You know, I'm much, much better at not making idiotic mistakes and writing scenes that shouldn't be there. And I kind of know I can fill in the gaps, you know. Um, when you're starting out, I, th- I think it should be fairly detailed, you know, like eight pages or something. It's up to you, will know. I mean, you'll have your own process and you'll just, you'll know when you're ready to start actually writing the script. You'll feel like your story's really good. If you go into writing your script with having done a lot of work on the story before they do, it will increase your chances a hundredfold. Yes, you with the blue. In ter- less what? If you are doing exposition, generally, it has to, the exposition works best. Right over my face. You don't see me, you don't see me. Um, Okay, the exposition works best in an argument, okay? Because let's say it's a marital argument or an argument between two brothers. You can't write dialogue like, so having gotten laid off from my job two years ago, I'm not really enjoying being a single dad of two, you know, you see shit like this in scripts, you do, Uh, okay? but. If that guy's having an argument with his her, his ex-wife and she goes, you are such a fucking deadbeat. And he goes, what do you want? You're the one that wanted to leave. But that sounds natural, doesn't it? Okay? So an argument is a great way to get out of exposition. Or let's say in your first scene, your hero is being fired and the boss is explaining why and he fights back and it turns into a huge fight and he storms out of there. But you will have found out everything about his character flaws or his situation from that dialogue. So you can make something quite active out of it and get out, sneak out a ton of information. Um, but don't have two people who know each other really well. Oh, here's a classic beginner's mistake, starting a scene with, so how long have we known each other? <laughs> they both know the answer to that, okay? There was another one in the back, yeah. Most people don't do them. Um, The outline's for you. Don't show anybody that could buy your script an outline. 
It's never worked for anyone that I know. Um, people don't really write treatments anymore. At that point, you might as well just write the script. That means you've done so much work already, it'd probably take you two weeks to write the sucker. I mean, people used to write like 30-page treatments. And it's like, you've done so much work, just write it. You know, they really want to see the script, basically. That, I haven't heard of anybody writing a treatment in years. There is something in the Writers Guild for purchase of a treatment, but it's like, you know, bupkis. I haven't heard his name for a long time, but I think he's still in there swinging. I think he is. I, I met him in the very dawn of my career. And it worked for him really well for a long time, but everybody gets older and, and uh, certain high concept things can really sound stale. Your job, your challenge is to come up with one that doesn't sound like it's a friggin' drag, you know? Okay, in the back there, somebody had a question? No, I haven't, but I know people who've had success with that. Usually, it's you have to be teamed up with an established director or producer. But for example, um, no, they do it at Sundance. You know, there's workshops there where they they make a little short version of a script, or they do three or four scenes from that script, and that becomes a calling card for how it would play. And that's how Whiplash got made. And that guy is just crazy talented. Um, and sometimes studios can, and, and, he, and he had J.K. Simmons in the, in the little thing. And of course, that just brought the whole thing to life. You guys have seen that movie, right? It's a great movie. And, um, and J.K. Simmons ended up winning the Oscar. He was no fool. He reprised the role when they made the full feature version of it. Yes. Yes, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. I'm almost there. So, um, so okay, you've written your script. And um, now you want feedback, okay? Give your script to a friend or two, preferably three or four people if you can. You are, now remember, you're asking for five hours of their time, okay? So it's, it's unbelievable to me the people who come up and want me to read their script and they barely know me. Would you walk up to a stranger and ask them for five hours of their time, you know? Um, that it, but people don't really understand how, so these have to be people that really like you. And the second criteria is they have to see a lot of movies, right? Don't give your script to somebody that doesn't like movies, you know, or doesn't see that many. Find out how many times they've got, a film freak is perfect. I mean, just somebody that's seen a million movies. And what you want from those, and the reason you want like as many people as you can get to read it, if they're intelligent and they like to read and they like movies, they don't have to be industry professionals. The next thing that you say is, what did and didn't work for you? I really need to know, and I'm really willing to take it on the chin, okay? Because most people, Miguel was saying yesterday, he used to really, in the beginning of his career when he was young and full of piss and vinegar, he just wanted to hear how great it was. He didn't want to hear there was a problem. But you desperately need that information before you go to the next step of trying to expose it to the wider world. And if four people all bump on the same thing, if a common tide of opinion develops, like it just lost steam towards the end and I got a little bored, you tell them it's okay to say the B word, bored. It's okay to say the C word, confused. You know, like you have to give them permission. If you're one of those people that just wants to hear it's great, you're never going to get anywhere, you know? So you need to know what isn't working. And then, you, and then what you hope you will get is a common opinion. Like people will bump on the same thing and then you know they're right, 
right? You, you have real information that way. If something, if they all say something different, you either didn't pick the right people because they don't know how to read a script or your script is an unholy mess. <laughs> you should throw it away. But, but generally, you'll find that somebody, some common ground in what they're telling you. And that feedback is critical, okay? Then you do a rewrite. And you're going to rewrite your script a few times before you show it to anybody because you're going to make all these learning mistakes. Or you'll go to a movie and it'll have a scene just like the one you just wrote. And you'll go, fuck, and have to go back and, and fix it. Um, so, and then, you know, okay, you've done that. You fixed it after the input you've got from your friends. And now you're going to go trolling for all those screenwriting contests. And you're also going to network at film festivals like this one. Maybe you can pick up, you know, sometimes they have agents and managers come to these things. You might be able to have a cup of coffee with one of them. You might make an entree. Maybe they'll, let, maybe they'll read something you wrote. Um, so there's ways to do it, but I would definitely try to enter as many contests as I could um, with a strong premise and as much page turning as you can get in there. Okay, now let's jump ahead to what happens if you start to get any attention. I'm going to talk about maximizing that sandwich time. I, oh, I'm fine. Uh, maximizing that situation in my next panel about like what you do after you get in. But your question, like, what are producers, what do they do? It can totally range from being the star's fucking manager that just gloms onto a producing credit on every picture she makes, um, but who does very little actual producing. And that's kind of criminal. And the Producers Guild has now kind of made a rule that those kind of people can't get up and accept an Oscar. You have to have been an active producer on the set, pre-production, post-production, not show up to the set three times to visit your client. Um, managers, unfortunately, are in a conflict of interest position because they can legally produce also or even run a production company. Agents, however, are bound not to. They have no conflict of interest in that way. So the difference between an agent and a manager can be blurry because ma managers are not supposed to negotiate, but they get involved with that. But they can circulate material and talk to people about you and set up meetings for you. So if somebody wants to manage you, you're having trouble getting an agent, but you can't get a manager, that should be enough to get you in the door, you know? And if your script is good, people will read it. Um, but you have to be careful of that conflict of interest thing. Um, now, maybe if the manager wants to set themselves up as the producer of your movie, but it's really just a manager, you don't have a lot to lose because you're brand new. It, the question is, what has that manager produced in the past or gotten their name on? If they're getting movies made effectively, who cares? It's not your money, right? But, it, but in general, but then there are other producers who truly produce the movie. They usually have a company, they have assistants, they have associates that read for them. They have um, people who are constantly trolling for material. They try to package movies, they work with agencies to get an actor to read your script, to get a director to want to direct it. That's what agents do also, but managers can do that. And, um, or possibly find a financier who's looking to do something just exactly like this. So uh, managers, if, if that's all that's available to you, that's not bad. I mean, take it, you know. Um, and then a an agent, managers tend to be more hand-holding and will listen to you whine for hours. They're, they're sort of there to soothe you and, and advise you, um, as well as do some other things. Agents are pretty no-nonsense. You can't cry on the phone to your agent for an hour about how you had to throw away 70 pages because it wasn't working. They don't want to hear it, okay? 
So your conversations with an agent at a big agency especially need to be terse, to the point, and preferably witty. You know, you want that person to enjoy dealing with you. You're not, you're sort of nobody and you're lucky that they're representing you, right? So um, getting an agent, you know, is, or manager, is really the way you get into the castle. Like, I, I always, in my mind, I thought of Hollywood as like this medieval castle with the moat up. And all of us peasants were on the outside of the moat and couldn't get into the castle. And then every once in a while, somebody lowers the drawbridge and one of us gets to walk over it into the castle and then it goes up again, okay? Sometimes the drawbridge is only lowered once in your life and you have to walk in and handle it well, right? Um, my writing partner, who would probably have been my writing partner for many films, had no way of handling how we sold our first script. He became petulant, difficult, really attached to certain things that didn't matter, and a professional liability. Um, and I had to go on without him, which was sad. I, I liked working with him, but he, he just couldn't handle, and that's why I'm doing a panel on comporting yourself, because there's a lot to learn about how you deal with meetings and agents and managers and demoralization and the face you want to wear at all times to play this game. Um, and and that's that's worthy of its own own panel. But you want to get your goal is your script is a giant piece of bait for an agent or a manager or an actor or a director. Would I want to direct this movie? Is it all just people talking in rooms? Well, as um, as we were saying yesterday, it's a visual medium. As an exercise, see how much you can make the point of your scene clear with a minimum amount of dialogue. You know. You don't want three, four, or five page dialogue scenes. And is your script largely set in, in small rooms? Well, unless it's the panic room, which made a point out of that, that's gonna feel completely claustrophobic to the reader. Get outside, change the scenery, be visually dynamic, write your description in a fun way, not a boring way. Um, Shane Black always wrote really fun description and it made his movies seem better on the page than they even turned out to be. But there's no harm in that. William Goldman wrote fun description. Read those guys' scripts for stylistic pointers on how to make the reader's eye dance across the page. William Goldman, his script for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is fun. And right away, the title card he had in the front of the screen, which George Roy Hill used in the movie, it says, not that this matters, but most of what follows is true. Right? That's really entertaining. And not that it matters, but da 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 da. And, and, and reading that script is fun. And it is the movie. I mean, it was shot. Yes. Well, what I did in Limitless, which is a bit of a cheap trick, was I forwarded, I fast forwarded to the ending and then had the whole thing told in flashback. So if you, if you, in my script was written, first shot, from the New York sidewalk, pan up to the top of a 40-story building to the penthouse, and you, and you pan up really fast, and you rise the camera, and this guy is standing on a ledge waiting to jump. Okay, that's my first shot. How did I get here? What am I doing? It's like the guy in the swimming pool in Double Indemnity. He's a corpse narrating the story. You're immediately interested in how he's floating upside down, a dead guy narrating this story from the grave. Okay? So that's a cheap trick. But there's tricks you can use. You need to let the reader know in some way that this movie is going to have a wallop. Okay? So I would put something visceral in your first 10 pages, 
you know, an incident that 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 leads to that ending. It it might be out of the his point of view. It might be sort of the other characters doing something. Let, let's say it's a crime movie. You could see some of the uh, uh, of the preparation for the crime, you know, out of the hero's point of view, and you could see that that preparation was going to affect him or his family, and he doesn't know about it, right? So now you're wondering when those two threads are going to come together because you're worried. See, there's a lot of ways to do it, but just oh, and let's let's also talk about um, you need to let the, the the reader and the viewer know what kind of movie this is going to be within the first 10 or 20 pages? Is it a balls-out comedy? Is it a black comedy? Is it a thriller? You know, it is very important to establish a consistent tone, and a tone change in a movie or a script is nearly always fatal. I've seen some movies that go along, and then they're kind of like a fun action picture, and then, you know, the hero's son is blown to bits, right? And suddenly it's gone over the line into something really brutal. And you didn't think you were signing up for that when you were just got your popcorn and were sitting there wanting to see kind of like a diehard movie where people are killed, but it's kind of cartoony, you know, and you don't really worry about it. And now this woman, you know, the lead's daughter has been killed, you know, and you're just like, what the fuck? Oh. You know, or a puppy gets dropped in boiling water or just something where it goes, okay, even by gross out standards, that's like over the line. So, um, I had an interesting moment like this myself where Limitless was meant to be a fun, entertaining movie and nothing else. But I wanted the third act to get grosser and grosser. I mean, I literally had these bodyguards with tattoos on their hands and you know that really bad guys had gotten to them when, they, when he got one of their hands sent to him in a box, right? And you would recognize by the tattoos that they had taken these guys out. It was a hand. And then I made a joke out of it later when they break into a safe and the bodyguard's hand is in there like this and nothing else, right? So I made it, but there's something gruesome about that, but it's fun, you know, like you just, you just know you're in okay hands with the tone, you know, and then Bradley having to drink blood at the end to get high, that was like, that's about as edgy as I've ever gotten, and uh, I remember when I came up with the idea, I was in bed with my husband, and I, I'd had him find a last pill, and I went, no, 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 that's too easy, and I wrote myself into a corner, I had the pill go down the grate, and he couldn't get it. There was nothing, you know. And and then I just suddenly realized this guy standing here about to torture him has that shit in his bloodstream. And then I went, oh, shit. Oh, my God. Oh, shit. And I turned to my husband, and I explained what I wanted to do. And I said, is that too much? Am I just like a disturbed individual? And he said, shit, Scorsese would do it. And I went, okay, I'm doing it. You know, it was like that was my, uh, you know, he gets pretty brutal, but he can still keep the audience with him. So tone change, you know, if you start out light and fluffy and then start killing puppies and kittens, uh, the audience and the reader is just never going to go there with you. And a few films have been made with a tone change that I've seen. It doesn't happen too often, and they've always flopped. One more, yeah. That's fine. That's fine, like like Sister Carrie or something. There's just people who start out in one thing and and you know someone's slowly going mad or whatever. But you have to you have to have some sense of foreboding if your movie is going to end in a dark place. You can't have no one know what kind of movie it is from the first ten pages. I agree with you; it's a bit of a challenge, but you have to do it. Otherwise, I think people might have been bored watching Bradley just be a schlubby writer. They needed to know that whatever story he was going to go on was going to have dire consequences. 
So while we're watching those scenes of him unable to complete his novel and his girlfriend breaking up with him, otherwise I, those would have been rather low-key domestic scenes to start my movie with. I didn't want to do that. It wasn't the most original thing I could have thought of, but um, it did work. Okay, so tone is really important. Um, length, try to keep it under 110 for your first script. People will be so grateful, honestly. I see professional screenplays anywhere from the 105 to 132 range, and I inwardly die when somebody, when I read a script that's 132. I'm just going, I, I hate the writer before I've opened the first page because it's probably going to suck and it's going to have 20 extra pages besides, right? That's what they're thinking. Um, so keep it short, you know, keep it short. And I also said yesterday, if it's a scene where the characters are talking about either what they just did or what they're about to do, cut it out, okay? And it will, and, and you know, you'd be amazed how many scenes like that make it into movies, and they always get cut out. I learned from ed the editorial process the kinds of things that don't make it into movies and you don't need to have in your script. Yes. Um, did I list those? Well, it's really the, it's what I call shoe leather scenes, um, the, which, which the, the things that I know are not going to make into the movie. Um, well, it's what I call shoe leather scenes where it doesn't advance the action at all. And if it was gone, would my plot make sense? Then it shouldn't be in there, right? You want to write scenes where the story doesn't make any sense unless the previous scene is there and the scene that comes after it is there. And if you've just got a scene where they're going, Okay, here's how we're going to rob the bank. We're going to do this, we're going to do that. That scene can be there if everything in the bank robbery goes horribly wrong and they can't and their plan doesn't work because then we're seeing something completely different from what we thought we were going to see. But it totally doesn't work if they say we're going to plan this bank robbery and then they do exactly what they said they were going to do. They're telling you the plot ahead of what's going to happen. Something's going to go, it's not going to be the bank robbery, it's going to be the scene where they talked about planning the bank robbery, right? But a lot of stuff gets into scripts like that, sometimes due to bad notes or inexperience on the part of the writer. And sometimes it even gets shot. And then they look at a rough cut or they put it up in front of an audience and they can feel the butts shifting in the seats during those scenes and they come out. I've begged directors not to shoot certain scenes like that. They go ahead anyway, comes out. Um, so the other thing is, if you can do something visually with description instead of dialogue, a really good exercise is to take one of your scenes that you're feeling is kind of wordy and say, all right, I'm a silent movie director. How would I make this clear with less dialogue? I've done, I've put that hat on before. But you have to write fun description to make that work. But, you know, um, that's really the mark of a pro. And if you can do that in a few scenes, you know, make something super clear. And also, don't write your description in a big block like this. You know, make the eye dance across the page, couple sentences, another sentence for emphasis, another sentence, boom, dialogue. But, you know, make spaces between your, your directions. And um, when you see a big block like this of description, I get weary. You know, they'll skim it. They'll totally skim it. And really just sort of look at the dialogue in the minimum. They, they're going to speed read your script. So if you have description that's not too copious and kind of fun to read, once they get the sense that, oh, this is a fun person writing this script, they might actually read it, especially if it's spaced out a little bit. But I cannot tell you, you're dealing with the attention span of a gnat for most of these people. Um, so yeah, no. conversely, you know what actors love to see? A dialogue block like this. 
<laughs> now, you don't want too much of that for somebody to read your script, but right before it goes to an actor or actress, go ahead, beef up their part. Give them more histrionics. Give them a big speech. Um, they love that shit. You know, I, I once was had a horrible experience with Kevin Spacey and I suddenly realized, oh, I know where he's coming from. Can't win the Oscar without talking a lot. He just wanted a bunch of big speeches. And I'm like, it doesn't make any sense for this character. It's really just not real. But he was adamant. But then this is the man who went into the body of a cat recently. So um, for a feature film. So I did. Yeah. And, and it made the script worse. Yeah, it did. Um, but there are other things. Uh, okay, l let's come back to Limitless for a minute. It's kind of nice to go to a movie that is recent. Um, they said, the studio said, we need to beef up the role of Bradley Cooper's boss because we're looking to get somebody meaningful and we'd like to get Robert De Niro and you just don't have enough there right now. And I went, you're right. You know what? If I was an actor and I, you know, I'm not sure I would care about this part, and I locked myself into a hotel room for two days and thought, okay, I'm Robert De Niro. What's going to make me want to do this part? Because that's who they wanted. And his agent was interested but said it just has to be beefed up a little bit. So I went back and I did write a big speech for him like this, imagining him saying it the whole time. And some other things like that. I made his part bigger. And I thought it worked great. I, you know, we were told that, that there's two De Niro's you get. There's lazy De Niro who's dating to be there and engaged De Niro who likes the script. And we got engaged De Niro. We, he was great. He, he loved Bradley. They became really good friends. Um, he really thought Bradley was a good actor. They really enjoyed doing their scenes together. And he got to tell him off with this big paragraph like this and impact the ending. And it worked. So I've learned over the years that you know, even if some dialogue is going to come out on the cutting room floor, the more you throw to your lead actors, the more likely they are to say yes and do it. Okay. Yes, I could have. I did sell it with what I already had. That script was written on spec because there was a star part for an actor. That was all there. And um, action and a high concept premise. So the script was able to be sold. Beefing up a supporting character that doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal is kind of a pleasure because you already know your movie's going, you got your lead, you know, you got your director. Now let's go make everything better around the edges of that. And that was actually fun for me. Um, I didn't mind a bit. And he was, and I turned it in and he was in by Monday. I turned it in on a Friday. It was like, he's doing it. And the only picture I've ever deliberately taken on a movie set and I've worked with all these people and I'm, I feel bad that I haven't taken more of these pictures but I was not going to let him leave the set without the picture of the two of us and I've got it in my phone forever so that was great all right we're almost done any more questions guys um, I, I really have come to the end of what I'm going to do here because once you get optioned that's the next panel for like how not to blow it Okay, go ahead. You? Well, your script can be registered whether you're a member or not with the WGA, and that's like copyright protection. Um, at that point, you're pretty protected. Um, Studios don't generally steal scripts. Sometimes they have something in development that's a lot like yours. 
you know, great ideas sometimes more than one person comes up with them. And people have sued studios in the past. Uh, generally, they're in the wrong. Generally. There's a, a couple of times that it's actually been proven to be a problem. Like if a studio can prove at, that they had access to your script and then so they buy, then they develop something just like it and slam it into production, you have a lawsuit. You can prove that that you had, you know, registered your script with the Writers Guild and that some producer on the lot had read it. Okay, in this time period before that happened, it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. You've got copyright on it the minute you send it to the WG. I think it costs ten dollars to register a script. And you're not a member, you don't have that protection, but generally speaking, and they might ask you to sign a release when they read it, and that's just a release from you suing them for anything they already have in development. Not something they might develop in the future because they can't legally take your ideas. And they generally don't. When you're really finished, yeah. Yeah, when your four friends have read it and you're kind of ready to go out with it, yeah, spend the $10 and register it with the WGA. You'll sleep better at night. It's not that hard. Okay, I've got time for one or two more. Um, you. I would recommend writing a graphic novel that they want to option and then attaching yourself as the screenwriter saying, I want the first pass at the script. If they want it, they'll probably let you do it. They'll pay you Writer's Guild minimum and maybe they'll throw the script away and hire someone else. But that's not a lot of money for them to waste to give you the first shot. And if you pleasantly surprise them, you're in. Well, they won't ever let you write as pay you to write a script unless you have something they want, you know? And they won't pay you to write a script unless you have a writing sample that's really strong, even if they don't have not So you have to write a script on spec. You have to. No one's ever going to pay you who hasn't done anything to write a script unless they were dying to buy your graphic novel. Then you'd have some leverage. That's how the writer of Gone Girl got to write the script. She said, I'm not selling this unless I'm the screenwriter. Okay, in the back, there was a couple guys. Yes. With what? Go out, take a walk, have dinner with some friends, take a couple days off, permit yourself to do goofy things. Um, remember that you're really lucky to be alive, you know? Um, I had a real problem with a script once, and I asked a shrink, like, God, I've never had writer's block before. How long does it take when it's really bad? He said, oh, a minimum of five to seven weeks, I mean, or a maximum of five to seven weeks. And that gave me incredible psychological permission to just take a break. Um, and three days later, I fixed it. It was like, it was almost like he was so certain that there was an end to it that it gave me permission to just relax. And then the, the ideas came to me, you know? Um, Listening to your intuition when you're writing is really important. Okay, anybody else? We're basically done here. Yes. Um, I don't think they have been. Um, that's a good question. I really should 
get those out there. You can see an early draft of Limitless online. I think they have it somewhere. Um, and, but in my case, one of the reasons I haven't saved a lot of scripts is that, that they really are the movies, you know? Thanks for listening to the Portland Film Podcast. Join us again next week as we continue our screenwriting series from the 2016 Portland Film Festival. If you enjoyed this week's episode, you can subscribe on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or visit us at theportlandfilmpodcast.com. The Portland Film Podcast is a Portland Film Festival production, produced and edited by Misty Eddy. Our associate producer is Sean Conley, sound engineer Paul Dillon, and I'm Molly Silverstein. See you next time.